I still thought that being a politician was the way for me to fight for people. Because all I wanted to do was fight for people. And then I think after my second loss, that I have to take a second and say, huh, maybe this is not what I meant to do in my life. I think failure makes those things clarifying. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Reshma Sujani. Reshma is an activist and the founder of Girls Who Code, as well as the author of the international bestseller, Brave Not Perfect. You might also know her from her TED Talk, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, which has been viewed almost 6 million times worldwide. She has a new book out called Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work, and along with it, an entirely new philosophy, which is tied to her new mission, The Marshall Plan for Moms. It is a national movement aimed at changing our economic system and workplaces to make it possible for women to have a thriving career with kids. But before Reshma was making such impactful change in the world, she had her own share of struggles, and they started way back in her childhood. So I want you to start at the beginning. Your family has a unique story in coming to this country. So I want you to tell me about that story of them coming and the story of Reshma's upbringing. So my parents came here as refugees from Uganda. I guess a lot of people don't know, but there are a lot of Indians living in Africa, uh, imperialism. They were brought over by the Brits to build the railroads from Kampala to Mombasa. And so several generations of my family uh, were born in, in Uganda. One day, my, my father was watching television in, in 1973, and this crazy dictator, Idi Amin, came on and basically said that all of the Ugandan Asians had 90 days to leave the country or they'd be shot on spot. My mom and my dad both had really big families. And so everybody was scrambling, you know, to get refugee status. And my parents, my mom and my dad, who were just recently married, and my mother was pregnant with my sister, were like two of the only family members that got refugee status to come to the United States. And so they decided to like, all right, let's do it. And when I asked my dad, well, how do you decide like what, you know, what state you were going to go to in the United States? Because we didn't know anybody. They didn't know anybody there. He loves to tell me the story about how he like took out a map of the United States, got out a dart and like threw it and it landed in Chicago, Illinois. So Mukund and Madhu Sajani, you know, came to Chicago, Illinois, wearing shorts and t-shirts in January. They were taken in by the Catholic charities and they built a life for themselves. My father changed his name from Mukund to Mike. My mother changes her name from Madhu to Mina. Even though they're both trained engineers, my dad worked as a machinist in a plant. My mother sold Mary Kay Cosmetics. By the time I come, though, I'm pretty sure they're both now working as engineers and, you know, have gotten jobs and are like deeper into American assimilation. Paint a picture for what it was like growing up in this random place in the U.S. that your parents had moved you all to. Yeah, I mean, I think I had a pretty hard childhood. You know, we grew up as like two brown girls in a very white working class neighborhood where there weren't a lot of brown people. You know, this is kind of like post Vincent Chen. 
You know, we had all this Asian American violence and hate, right? And we weren't welcome. And my parents were still struggling. My dad would go to Toastmasters, you know, class trying to get rid of his accent. My mom was still trying not to wear a sari and a bindi when she went to Kmart. And so, you know, we got bullied a lot. Uh, and I was really resentful. I mean, I wanted to be white. I remember kept saying, "What, well, mom, why didn't you just name me Rachel? Why did you name me Reshma? Um, and we weren't wealthy. We always started joking, like, but they dressed us like fobs, you know, like we were like fresh off the boat. Like we didn't have the stuff that other kids had. We didn't have the cool things. They didn't know. Like everything we learned about how to like be American was like on television. I mean, I was called a haji at school. Our house was like frequently like spray painted and uh, teepeed. I remember this one time, you know, somebody had written, go back to your own country. And I remember coming outside and my dad was just, you know, had this like jug of Clorox. He was just wiping the side of the house off. And I remember watching him and I think he was like whistling. And I was so mad at him for not being mad. And I think for my father and for so many immigrants back then, like the violence, the racism, the hatred, you know, that was your tax that you had to pay for coming to this country. And I never, ever, even to this day, have ever heard my father or my mother say one word about it. You know, they got nothing but love for everybody, even after that. And, and out of curiosity, because like you said, it made you mad that they weren't mad. Did you feel comfort in sharing with them when you would experience bullying or racism in school? Or did you keep it to yourself? Like, how did you handle it, given that your parents had a very different approach to things that you weren't okay with, but they just kind of brushed off? I think for up until like the last day of eighth grade, you know, I kind of had their approach, which was the assimilation. And when someone threw a snowball at my head on the way to the bus stop, I didn't say anything. You know, when someone made a racial slur in middle school, I didn't say anything. I still tried to be friends with them. I still tried to fit in. I didn't admit that I was, you know, brown. And I, I just, I was still trying, I would say I was still trying to be white. And I remember the last day of eighth grade, this girl came up to me and basically called me a haji. And I don't know, it was the last day of eighth grade. So I was feeling kind of feisty or whatever. And, you know, she challenged me to a fight and I was like, all right, see you there. And up until the last bell, my friend Fu, of course, another Asian girl was like, just get on the bus, get on the bus, Rushma, get on the bus. I'm like, no, I am not getting on the bus. I don't know what I had for breakfast that morning, but I show up to, and I still remember this vividly, I show up to, you know, the playground back at the school and like all the kids are in this circle and it's like a party. Streamers, shaving cream, people are screaming, blah, 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 blah. I walk into the circle, the girls come and like, boom. One of them has a tennis racket. The other one has a losing wheel slugger, you know, a baseball bat and I'm out. And the next thing I remember is just my friend, Fu, I don't know how she did it, just dragging me home. And I mean, I had a concussion. I mean, it was bad. And I don't remember what happened after. My sister reminded me of the story actually a week ago, which is why it's fresh in my head. But I guess I show up and my mother sees me and just starts crying. And I am messed up. 
You know, I got a huge black eye, huge bump on my head. But my parents don't call the police. Don't take me to the hospital, right? Don't call the school. And my mother is just crying like, why? To my father, why did you bring us to this country? Why did you bring us to this country? And the next day, I got eighth grade graduation. So I got this beautiful black and purple lace dress that I had been dying to wear. And my sister said that I woke up the next day, again, no doctor see me, right? I wake up the next day and I'm like, I'm going to graduation. And she calls her friend over, Deepa, who does my makeup, of course, tries to hide the bruises and everything. Uh, did not work that well. I still have photos. <laughs> and we go to graduation. And my father, of course, finds the parents thinking that the parents are going to be like, I'm so sorry, my daughter kicked the shit out of your daughter. Right. And they're like, you know, sorry, not sorry. It's kids or whatever. And of course that brings my, you know, we get back in the car. My mother's crying again. Why'd you take me to this country? Why'd you bring me here? And they're devastated. And yeah, I think that that was really a shift, a very huge shift kind of in my life. And what was the shift? You know, it sounds like it had a profound impact on you. What was that impact? I mean, the shift was I was never going to be white. So I might as well as be brown. And I might as well as accept who I am. And that in some ways, like the strategy of just trying to assimilate was not working. And I had to embrace who I was and like fight back. Like my dad's strategy was not going to work for me. Reshma's physical assault permanently altered her relationship with her identity. Yes, she realized she isn't going to be white, but really it was code for she was never going to fully fit into her environment. But it was her reaction to the attack that completely amazed me. In high school, she ended up starting an organization called PRISM, which stood for Prejudice Reduction Interested Students Movement to raise awareness and reduce racist acts like the one she faced from ever perpetuating in her community. And it seemed preordained that Reshma would have the career in activism that she has today. But on the flip side, I wondered how this reaction based off of trauma affected her inner self. It very much seems like you shifted from this kind of passive approach to letting things happen and trying to stay level-headed about it to really taking an active approach where you put yourself in the driver's seat of trying to to face and fight the very things that clearly had such an impact on you both physically and emotionally. Something you've talked a lot about is this idea of perfection, right? And we're going to talk about how you view perfection. But do you view the emphasis that you placed on perfection throughout your career, throughout school, like through everything, does that come from your experiences of bullying and and the struggles you experience in your life? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it comes from being the daughter of immigrants. You know, my parents came here with nothing. And I very much felt like, for me, I wanted to get out. I never felt like, okay, my, my town, Schaumburg, was where I was going to be and where I was going to raise kids and where I was going to work. I, I knew that there was always something for me. And not, it didn't ever feel right. High school didn't feel right. Like my, Nothing felt right. Like 
there was something else waiting for me, I guess I should say. And I understood enough that most of my friends and most people around me went to community college or state school, right? That there were no Ivy Leaguers. I didn't even know, like, you could apply to Harvard or Yale. You know, that was not in my sights. Um, But I always wanted something more. And, you know, my parents worked and they couldn't afford childcare um, when we were older. And so my dad would just drop us off at the library and we would be there for hours. I guess in many ways, planning my exit, and figuring out how I was going to get out. And it all came back to education. It all came back to pedigree. It all came back to having the notches on your belt was the way that I was going to be able to make my big dreams come true. My parents had very tight control over us. But, you know, it's, I think it was with this like sense of not like this hyper-intensive parenting and tiger parenting that you see today because you didn't have time. My parents never went to a, a game or an award ceremony or one of my debates. They never read my college application or even knew where I was applying to. They did not have time. They were just trying to survive. So my ambition came from me. And my, my desire for that came from me. My parents didn't want Harvard for me. You know, they were like, go get married and settle down and have some kids. I wanted it. And I didn't know anybody in my life that could tell me how to get it. So I had to figure it out at the Schomburg Public Library of like what the path is, what you do, you know, what the playbook is for success. And that playbook for success for Reshma was simple. Work harder than everyone else for straight A's and for recognition. And while this drive might have helped her get into schools she wanted to get into, this intense fixation on never messing up did come at a cost. I was always chasing credentials. I was always working really hard. I had straight A's, A's, A's in like everything because I would study and memorize and like figure it out. I still think today my friends will say I'm like the hardest working person that they know. But it's not, it's not like it just comes to me, right? Like I work for it. I mean, and I don't, and, and I really was obsessed with pedigrees. You know, I applied to Yale Law School three times before I got in. And I was obsessed because I thought, if I want to be president, if I want to be Supreme Court Justice, if I want to be a senator, I need that pedigree. Was that what you wanted to be from a young age? I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to make change. I didn't know if that was like Dr. King, Mahatma Gandhi, president, but I wanted to have change. And I knew that I didn't grow up with a lot. And like, I guess it seemed like everybody I knew who did those things went to those fancy schools. And I ended up transferring to Yale. And I remember thinking about this when I, I went to Georgetown. I mean, psh, Georgetown, right? Slumming. Yeah, ho- horrible, and school. To- horrible school. Horrible school. Horrible <laughs> school. But at Georgetown, I remember people people like in my one first year law school class, I think they really threw things at me because they were like, who is that annoying girl sitting in the front? Thinking, I mean, but I had no friends, no life, nothing. And I was crushing it at Georgetown. Like, I would have aced Georgetown and I could have been in any Supreme Court clerk that I wanted to be, but I was insistent on going to Yale. But then by the time you get to these places, you're so exhausted. I joke, but then by the time I got to Yale, all I did was party. And it was funny because it was like me and these nine women of color and we just, we were just so done, right? Of, of like all of the energy that we had spent to get to this institution that we didn't even take advantage of the institution when we got there. That's the crazy part. I didn't get a Supreme Court clerkship. I didn't even get a clerkship. Like, 
back in the day, I got to ask them. I doubt my law school professors at Yale were like, Rashma, she's the one. We're going to take a quick break here. But when we come back, we'll hear about what was perhaps Rashma's greatest career setback and how the failure ultimately helped her to get to where she is today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We're back to our conversation with Reshma Sujani. We left off with Reshma with her finally getting into Yale Law School after being rejected three times. And now that she got the law school cred she was looking for, she started looking outwards, wanting a career in public service, but instead falling into a career in white collar law. Well, I mean, I you know go to law school. I'm thinking I'm going to go work at the Department of Justice. Gore doesn't get the nomination. All of us are like, like, we're not going to D.C. now with that guy. So now I'm $300,000 in student loan debt, right? Because I'm also spending all this money to get to Yale, right? I get there. I graduate $300,000 in student loan debt. I'm 24 Wild. years old, right? I got parents who make not a lot of money, a lot of debt, nothing there. All these loans are in my name. So during the summer, you know, I am seduced by all these fancy law firms where you make more money than my father makes in a month, in a week, you know, to be an intern. I'm like, damn, I loved New York City. I went there when I was in college. I was like, that's where I wanted to go. So I go take this fancy law firm job. And I clearly didn't read my student loan forms, but I'm thinking, oh, I'll just, you know, oh, I'm making $150,000 a year. Great. I just got to work for two years and then I can pay off all that debt and go like, get rid of the man, take the golden handcuffs off, do what I want to do. Like done. This is not a bad trade. Well, clearly I didn't hear about taxes or how much, how expensive it is to have like a drink in New York city. And now I am handcuffed to this life that I don't want. And a year goes by, two years goes by, three years goes by, four years goes by. Now it's 10 years and I'm in New York city. I still only have $20,000 maximum in my bank account I probably still have $180,000 in student. Like I barely made a dent. And so I'm like, this is it. Like, this is the, uh-uh, no, this cannot be the rest of my life. This was not Reshma's plan. And so I, you know, very involved in politics at this point, intern for Hillary, work on her campaigns, work on John Kerry's campaign. And I've always wanted to run. You know, I've always thought that that's what I would do. And I'm miserable at my job. I'm looking for a way out. I finally get the permission to, I'm like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And there's this rumor that Congresswoman Maloney was going to run against Kirsten Gillibrand for Senate. And there's a congressional seat open in my district. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. And by the way, how did you convince yourself to do it when, again, it sounds like you're still in a shit ton of debt? How did you make the justification to do that? 
So I don't know about you, but like one, I make decisions from hitting rock bottom. Yeah. And I had hit rock bottom. What did that look like? That looked like me and a bottle of wine on a Sunday night, just sleeping on my floor, exhausted, crying, tired, just, just done. And I remember I was having a phone call with a friend that was at work and I was just like in a conference room hiding and crying. I don't cry. I don't cry. So if Rush was crying, like, oof. Something's really fucking wrong. Something's really fucking wrong. And she was just like, just quit. Because I kept thinking like, this can't be what it was all for. Like all the struggle, all the pain, all the work, all the suffering. This can't be it. This can't be the end of my story. And and then I called my father probably a couple of days after that. And I was scared because I was also helping them pay for their mortgage. I had this family kind of responsibility a little bit. I was the one who had the money to like take the nice dinners and do the things and give him a little bit of money to pay his mortgage off earlier. You know, I could do that for him. And I thought that that's what he wanted for me. But, I, you know, it's funny. He said to me, you know, in Hindi, he was like, you know, better quit. You're done. I, I know you're not happy. And it's so funny because I had built him up as the reason that I couldn't, that he was waiting for me to have the courage to leave. And then I was, then it was game on. So then it was like, oh, what am I going to do now? And people started talking to me about this congressional seat, or at least I thought that they were. And I got excited about running for office. This young 33-year-old upstart, John Legend doing a concert for her, you know, fun, fresh marketing. And I thought I could meet every you know voter, shake every hand, and I get crushed. What was that failure like? Devastating. It was embarrassing. It was also just like the campaign was rough. Half the time I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I'd really botched some of my messaging. So like, here I am as this young woman with like ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 in her bank account, daughter of refugees, but like I'm sold as like Wall Street's bitch. Like it, my husband and I just laugh sometimes because we go back and read some of the articles and it's just like, wow, why was that the story? But you know, it was a good story. So not only do I lose, but I, I lose with like nothing. With like, you know, now a shitty reputation that I have to like rebuild. And I really wanted the job. I had imagined my congressional office and like everything. Like I had seen it. I, I remember my father being like, okay, I'm going to bed now. I was like, great. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's kind of standing around and I didn't even have a concession speech. And I, I made it actually through my entire party. I was like, I'm running again. Like I was such an asshole. I made it through my whole party without crying. But then when I came home, I cried. And then the next day I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. I didn't know what was next. I think Kobe Bryant was this way and a lot of basketball players this way, which is like, you have a loss at a young age that should have been a win. And that remains a chip on your shoulder for the rest of your life. And that's how I feel. It's interesting to think about it, right? Because you went from early childhood very much assimilation mentality um, that was created by your parents. Then you have the shit beat out of you in eighth grade, and it really prompts you to be a more active participant in the story you wanted to create for yourself. You are this perfectionist throughout high school, throughout college, law school, corporate law. You end up really unhappy, leads you to obviously run in the, the congressional race. You lose. It's heartbreaking. 
and then it propels you into girls who code. I'm interested, was your embracing of failure something that existed right after the congressional loss or did that happen later in your career? And were you still kind of like this absolute perfectionist as you went on to build girls who code and now as you're building, you know, Marshall Plan for Moms, like how how did your mentality change or did not change uh, when you went on to build your business? I think I did embrace the failure pretty quick because part of me was like, all right, y'all not going to elect me. I'm going to show you. And so I think some candidates lose and then they go, they literally go away. And then some candidates lose and they, they can't pivot. Right. And some candidates lose and then they keep running and they keep losing because they haven't learned the lesson. Right. So for me, I think what was great about the loss was, I'm not gonna lie. Like I wasn't, I was building Girls Go, but I ran again almost immediately two years after while I was building. So I was like hedging, right? I was building a nonprofit and I was going to run again. I still thought that being a politician was the way for me to fight for people because all I wanted to do was fight for people. And then I think after my second loss that I have to take a second and say, huh, maybe this is not what I meant to do in my life. Meaning this job as a, as a politician, not this work. The work was always clear for me of what I was meant to do. And I think failure makes those things clarifying. It clarifies for you what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. If you can actually take the personal out of it and the rejection out of it. I freaking hate it when people say to me, like, I'm like, I lost two elections. And people are like, no, you didn't lose, Rashma, you really won. I'm like, no, I freaking lost. It's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. It's okay to lose, to fail, and to say, I learned something from the failure. It doesn't have to be translated into a win. We still live in a society that has this very uneasy relationship with failure. Reshma's congressional campaigns were a second, very definitive turning point in her life. And I think it's potentially more valuable to feel this loss and understand how to come back from it rather than prioritize a life of perfection. This new reasoning was the ethos of her organization, Girls Who Code, which has helped more than 450,000 girls and women break into the STEM fields. Reshma led that organization as its CEO for more than 10 years, until recently when she stepped down to pursue a new endeavor, the Marshall Plan for Moms. But it wasn't just this new passion that inspired Reshma to step back from Girls Who Code. It was also a major shift in her thinking about the hustle and grind culture of work today. COVID changed that for me. You know, I was the ultimate girl boss until 2020. You know, it took me a long time to have my first kid. I wanted that baby so bad. And with my first child, I saw him, never saw him crawl, never saw him walk for the first time, never saw him say his first words. I was on two planes, two trains a week. I probably gave between 250 to 300 speeches a year. And I saw him 20 minutes a day. And I was like, that's the cost. Is that tough for you to say? It's tough for me to say now, like to acknowledge how crazy some of the things I did that I thought I had to do. And what's harder, and Huma Ambedine and I actually were talking about this last night at a thing she was doing for my book. Um, it's even worse when you're a social entrepreneur because you, you're like, baby, I can't see you because I got to go save all those other babies. And so it's harder when you're an activist because the, because it's, the work is never done. So it's never enough. 
And everything you do for yourself is seen as being selfish, including spending time with your family. And then, you know, for COVID happens, I have to rebuild Girls Who Code because, you know, during pandemics, the first resources to go are to women and girls. You know, I had to do some, you know, some serious layoffs. My team, which was brutally painful. I'd never cried before as a CEO ever in the nine years that I ran Girls Who Code, as much as I cried in my staff meetings, you know what I mean, in 2020. I have a newborn baby. So I have two kids that I'm trying to raise. And while I'm doing, you know, a ton of the, so, so it was, it was hell. And I have resources and it was hell for me. And I, I think that that was just a big aha moment for me, which was like, oh, wow, I had, I had built into this lie. I'd bought this lie that I was selling to hundreds of thousands of girls every year. That if you just hustled hard enough, if you leaned in hard enough, that you could girl boss your way to the top, that the corner office was just waiting for you. And if you weren't getting it, it's because you weren't trying hard enough. You weren't resilient enough. You were not strong enough, brave enough, courageous enough. And when I got broke, like it, it was clear to me, oh, it's never the woman. It's always the system. And the system is broken. And that's where the change needs to happen. And even right now, it's very interesting. Like the CDC just had a report come out and the two groups that are suffering from the most exhaustion and anxiety are 18 to 24 year olds and moms. And I was thinking about like, what's the commonality between the two? And I think for like young people today, and I did this, go change the world. Go, go solve COVID climate and cancer. Like be resilient. You know what I mean? Pandemic is good for you. It, you know, taught you something. And it's the same thing to moms. So if you think about your own mother, how many times have you ever seen her break? Never. Never. Ever. Yeah, I've actually never not seen allowed her break. to break. You've never seen her break. That is impossible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's and so if you're if you're basically society is saying to, to you like you're not allowed to break, most people will say that about their mothers. I've never seen my mother crack. She is the person I go to, I can rely on. Think about that, the, the anxiety and the anguish and the amount of weight in this, in this moment without any support, any acknowledgement. And it's like I was saying, we don't want to thank you. We just want some help. Well, and where I want to finish is, you know, I feel like it's been the story of your of your life and your career and i think it's because you have, have amazing self-awareness and critical thinking is like you go through these really difficult experiences but then you have the, the self-awareness to step back and be like okay this sucked but i learned something from this that's helping me to you know navigate whatever my course is and so kind of in, the, in this most recent really intense challenge of covid and having children and your business and all of the things, being a mother, like you said, it broke you. How has that catalyzed the work that you're doing now? How did that struggle yeah. lead to what you're doing now? So I love big problems and I love tough problems and I love solving things that people think are not solvable. So right now we're in this middle of this period where we really can rethink the future of work and we need to look at our workplaces and say, I am not going back to that. Like the hustle culture has to end die. And it's up to us to kill it because all the forces are saying, 
come back, come back to nine to five, come back to being in the office, come back. No, 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 you can't focus on your kids. No, you're not going to yoga. You're not meditating. You're not having a life. No, work, 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 right? And so we've all bought into this big lie. As women, we bought into the big corporate feminist lie. As men, we've been bought into the lie that like, you don't, you shouldn't take care of your kids. You shouldn't spend time with your kids. You're the provider. Provider means that you're in the office all day long. So, you know, with my book, Pay Up, and what I'm doing with the Marshall Plan for Moms, it's all about taking this opportunity, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to rethink the future of work and to rebuild corporate workplaces. I feel like if they work for moms, they're going to work for everybody. If we can fight for flexibility, remote working, we can fight for companies. I mean, you're going to pay for me to freeze my eggs. Well, pay for my childcare then. Care about my mental health and not just my output recognize that in periods where we were working less the past two years, the stock market was the highest it has ever been. I want to be like Europe. I want to have vacations. I want to chill. I want to have time. I mean, the most creative and innovative I've ever been in my life is this period I'm in now where I get up, I got my whoop, I sleep eight, eight and a half hours a day, I play tennis in the morning. I walk my dog. I see my kids. I never miss bath time. Sounds freaking awesome. I see my girls. And I am building the largest, biggest women's organization you are ever going to see. Like, we're going to shift, shift the landscape of work, period. And I'm going to do it with joy. And I think everybody should have that expectation too. And Everything I was selling before or I had bought before was wrong. And it's okay to say that. You know, the work that you're doing with Marshall Plan for Moms and with your book to systemically change the way that work works for for women, I'm interested, have you changed your personal system at all, right? Like you talked about basically not caring about yourself at all. So within the context of, of your life, have you made any changes for yourself? I have, but I, I, listen, I have a mantra on my desk right now that says, I stand in my purpose and I trust that I will get the things that I need. I am building a new nonprofit. I'm launching a new book. There's things I want. You know what I mean? There's 50 emails I sent out today. of like things I want. And, you know, I have habits where I'm never satisfied and I put importance on things that don't actually, I know, matter. And so I do have to keep reminding myself of what, and again, that I stand in my purpose and I have trust that the universe will give me that what I need. You know, the second thing, listen, and anyone send me tips on, on how to do this, I do have a hard time chilling and relaxing and having fun and being in the moment. And so that is a constant struggle. But I think it's because I realized that, you know, God only gives you what you need. And I feel like I have gotten a lot of pain because I can, I want to share it with people. Reshma is such an incredible example of someone who recognizes when things aren't working, she reevaluates and she makes a change. When she was experiencing racism as a kid, she came around to realizing that trying to keep her head down and assimilate was not going to be the answer. When she lost not one, but two congressional races, she started to see other ways in which she could make the change she wanted to make in society. I think what we can learn from Reshma is this. When you aren't succeeding in something, the solution isn't always to get up and keep trying. Sometimes it's a great opportunity to step back, to think about what you've learned, 
to shift your perspective and find a completely different approach. There isn't always just one route to where you're trying to get. And now, before we go, it's time for some reflection of my own. In thinking about how much of Reshma's early life and successes were fueled by perfectionism, I was reminded of an episode I made a year ago on my other podcast, Founder's Journal. The episode was called The Double-Edged Sword of Being a Perfectionist, and I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version here. I'm someone who definitely identifies as a perfectionist, for better or worse. And with all things, I've observed throughout my career the ways in which this mindset has both helped and hurt me. On the one hand, I think it's helped fuel the intense drive that I have that's aided me in my career and what ultimately helped building Morning Brew. On the other hand, it's also created some significant challenges. For instance, it can be hard for perfectionists to ever feel satisfied about anything. Every project you finish could always be a little bit better. Perfectionism can also blind you to other important things in your life. When you are a perfectionist who's obsessed with their career, if you don't moderate yourself through reflection or through having the right perspective, your purpose portfolio may run the risk of being far too concentrated on your professional life. The other things that matter to you, like relationships, family, religion, and other passions, can fall victim to neglect. Psychologists have actually broken down perfectionism into five main types that are extremely useful to know if you think you might identify as a perfectionist. I'll give you three right now. The first is what's called self-oriented perfectionism. Basically, these are people who have high personal standards. They are intrinsically motivated to be perfect, and they are highly self-critical if they fail to meet their own high expectations. The second one is what's called socially prescribed perfectionism. Socially prescribed perfectionists believe that other people expect them to be perfect and that these other people will be highly critical of them if they fail to meet expectations. And the third type of perfectionism is other-oriented perfectionism. And other-oriented perfectionists are those people who expect others to be perfect. And they are highly critical of those who fail to meet their impossibly high standards. I find that other-oriented perfectionism is a really tough trait to have if you want to have a successful career and work well with other people. I would say I am most similar to the description of the socially prescribed perfectionist. On one hand, that means I still have the tools to be an empathetic and fair leader and manager and someone who has a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. But it also means that likely too much of my fulfillment and my purpose in career and work is driven by others through validation and comparison versus my own intrinsic sense of self. Like Reshma, these are things that I'm working on. Finding that improved balance between ambition while also being able to enjoy life outside of work. It's so important. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our show is produced by Michaela Heck and Vishnu Valbanani. Our executive producer is Brian Henry. Our booking producer is A.B. Silver. And our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Alan Haberchak is the director of audio at Morning Brew. And Sarah Singer is our VP of multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. <laughs>